Well, thank you, Mr. Ty. So great to have Ty over with us. Ty leads worship for our fellowship student ministries. And welcome to you, Fellowship Rogers. We're so glad that you are here this morning. We want you to experience Christ in an intimate way. And we also want you to connect with our church. So if you're new to fellowship, or maybe you've just found yourselves over the last couple of years having drifted from friendship or participation, we'd love to connect with you. Why don't you just come out in the foyer and introduce yourself to us? We've got some information we wanna get and we'll be in contact with you or you can just scan this QR code and we will follow up with you via online. Good morning, Beth Davies. Good morning, Sam Hannon. You're good, keep going. Good to see you this morning and good to see you fellowship. Um, I would like to just bring to you a little bit of information specifically to Springdale. So heads up Springdale, we have a lot going on this week. First of all, one week from today, we have a cookout at the Tyson Pavilion um, in Springdale, four o'clock to seven o'clock. We would love to see you there, opportunity to connect. And we have talked to the city of Springdale. We have They're and- They're gonna turn on the AC at Rotary Park. They are, it's exciting. Not only that, Sam, there's more. Inflatables for the oh, children. Yes. yes. Is there an age limit on the inflatables? Yes, Sam. Okay, good. <laughs> yes, good. Sam. We'll talk about that after this. Um, anyhow, so we hope you will come. And we also have something else um, day after tomorrow for women. We have a gathering here on campus um, in the lodge. And it is called A Splash of Summer. A splash of summer. You know what a splash is. It's refreshing. It's quick. Kind of catches you a little bit off guard and it can be a very good thing. So that's what our um, goal is. Get women together to connect with one another and um, just have a splash of goodness. So hope you'll come. Seven o'clock. We'd love an RSVP for both of these things to help us plan. So... QR reader. Springdale. Springdale. Hey, we have a ministry that is launching in Northwest Arkansas this August. Its focus is on discipleship, helping you mature in the faith. And so check this out. My favorite part of Downline so far has been just the intentionality of looking at scripture and taking what I've learned to apply it um, in my everyday life, but also in my ministry life. And I've loved the study of the Gospels and the intentional look at the life of Jesus. It's helped me um, teach the students that I work with in high school ministry. If you want to just know how to walk in the ways of the Lord in the secular workforce, this is the perfect opportunity to do that because you take what you learn and then you take it back to your sphere of life. Downline has given me those tools to give me the confidence to really come alongside someone and, and try to lead them on the path that is, is pleasing and to God and that will ultimately glorify him and make disciples on down the line. I've learned that discipleship is not about making fans or admirers of, of Jesus, but making followers of Jesus Christ, who in turn will make followers of Jesus Christ. Downline has, has been great about providing uh, some tools for how to engage disciples and not only with the, the knowledge that we get or the things that we learn uh, about the word, but also in the practical ideas about how to, how to transfer that information to others. Well, Fellowship, I want to introduce you to the director of Downline Ministry. This is Dave Adams. Welcome, Dave. Yeah, thanks, Sam. I appreciate you having me. <clears throat> yeah, that'd be, that would be appropriate. Hey, Dave, why don't you capture for us what Downline's goal is through the program? 
Yeah, so uh, Downline is a nine-month Bible and discipleship training institute focused on two things. What does it mean to make disciples and how do I do it? And then we want to learn the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 uh, in a way that we can understand it and give it away to others. So over the last 15 years through five different institutes, we've trained well over 2,000 people. Uh, and over those last 15 years, we've seen both uh, incredible personal transformation in the lives of those people who have participated and also a, 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 a real energy and an excitement of about taking the truth of God's word and a vision for disciple making and then going and using that in our home with our children, uh, in the community, maybe with a lost neighbor you're trying to reach for Christ, and with younger believers in the church and elsewhere to try to train them up to a point of maturity where they can reproduce and make other disciples. And we, Fellowship has found that Downline is a strategic partner for us. And so we would encourage you, if you're looking for something to invest your life in this year, I would encourage you to come and talk to Dave. They're gonna be out in the foyer. You'll see the Downline banners and logos. Just come and check it out. Hey, what age group is this targeted for? Yeah, so our institute is really intergenerational. So we uh, have folks in the institute all the way from recent college grads, age 22, all the way up to retirees and empty nesters who are 60, 70 uh, and and 80. So really anyone sort of post-college and on, we would love to have you uh, stop by the booth and learn more about what we're doing. That'd be great. Hey, fellowship, would you pray with me as we continue to worship? Well, Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to just be still and know that you are God. And Lord, I pray that as we sing and as we give and as we pray, and as we hear from your word, that you would meet us in this moment. Lord, we love you. And we thank you that you first loved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. with me what gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer what gift of grace is Jesus my redeemer there is no more for heaven now to give he is my joy my righteousness and freedom my steadfast love my deep and boundless peace to this i hold my hope is only jesus for my life is holy and bound to his oh how strange and divine i can sing all is mine yet not i you guys stand with me and sing this? The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side, my Savior, He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoice. For in my need, his power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley, he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall I know I am forgiven, we sing. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my heart. And he was raised to I hold to this I hold my sin has been defeated Jesus now 
every breath we sing this together with every breath i long to follow jesus for he has said that he will bring me home and day by day i know he will renew me until i stand with joy before I hope my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to Him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. To this I Jesus, that's our prayer. Yet not I, but through you and your work in us. Lord, we love you. Amen. You guys can take a seat for a second. As I was preparing for the service, I had a, just a story and a song that was kind of bouncing around in my head and I just really felt the need to share. Um, I'm a big history guy. I studied history in college. And so if somebody's been dead for at least 300 years, I find them super fascinating just crazy fascinating. And one of those people is John Newton. And that might ring a bell for some of you. John Newton was an Englishman who lived in the 18th century. And in his early life, he was conscripted to join the Navy as a sailor. But after that, in the latter half of his life, he actually continued sailing, but in not quite such an honorable way. Um, John Newton was a member of the transatlantic slave trade, if you guys know what that is. Basically how it happened is England would send guns and Bibles to Africa Africa would send African slaves over to the new world who would then bring export like um, sugar and crops back to England. And John Newton was a slave driver on one of these ships. And he had spent his entire life doing this whole cat and mouse thing with Jesus, kind of this cultural Christianity going to church, but his inner life was just wrought with sin. The fact that he would package his fellow image bearers of God like sardines into boats and send them across the Atlantic where they would work and be enslaved for the rest of their life. It was just abysmal. But it wasn't until a furious storm came on his boat that he actually remembered Jesus and he surrendered his life to Jesus in that moment. And so he left his career, left the trade and he went back to his hometown, but he was just kind of in inner turmoil about his life, about the awful things that he had done. But then the fact that he was now being invited into Jesus's family. Maybe some of you can relate to that. And it was in this place, just wrestling with the tension of, I know the things that I've done, the evil things, and I know the guilt and the shame that I feel. But on the other hand, I know that I serve a holy and good God. So how do these things overlap? Because in his mind, the only thing a holy and good God could ever do is condemn him and bring justice upon him. But see, in the Christian life, the gap between our sinfulness and a holy good God is this mysterious word, the word grace. And it's a word that I haven't even begun to understand. That somehow a God of justice and righteousness could look at me and my sin and declare me free of guilt. And John Newton understood this mystery. And in 1772, he penned the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And I think if there's any human ever that could understand the gravity of that statement, it was him knowing the evils that he had done, the way that he had lived a life of abuse and destruction on other human beings to write the lyric, amazing grace. Because it would truly take amazing grace to save a soul like that. And if I can take a step further, it would take amazing grace to save a soul like mine and a soul like yours. 
And that's the joy that we have, knowing that I don't have to approach God this morning based on my own merit or my own righteousness, but his merit and his righteousness, because Jesus completed the work on the cross. And so my salvation doesn't rest in my ability to be good for God, but Jesus's ability to be good for God. And so this is gonna be the theme of our morning. In a little bit, we're gonna read a story of a woman who is just pouring out her affection and devotion on Jesus because she is just grateful for the way that he's loved her. And I don't have much to offer this morning. I have more than enough sin to keep me busy. I have more than enough anxieties to bring to the table. I don't really have much. I'm not that impressive. And so if I were to come into this place to try to make God happy or please him or put on a show for him, it wouldn't really be that powerful. But when I come to Jesus humbly and I say, Jesus, I need your grace because I'm sinful and I'm broken and I can't do this without you. I think he's delighted to meet us there. So I'd love for us to take the same response that John Newton took, that this feeling of joy that just surrounds our life in Jesus, that we would respond to that in song. So as we sing these words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, would you just think on that? If there's things that you've done, maybe walls that you've built between yourself and the Lord, would you just ask him to break those down? The sins that we bring to the table, will we confess those? as we sing these words, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let's sing this together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I want
not standing apathetic to us in heaven, looking down at us in our sin, but no, you actually came down to us. Thank you for putting on flesh and experiencing the pain that we feel. God, above all, thank you for your grace, your unmerited favor towards us who believe. So Jesus, I just ask, if there are people in this room that haven't experienced this grace, would you just pour it out on them? They would know your love, that they would experience your love because this grace changed my life. Where I was once enslaved to sin and my own passions and desires, Jesus, you liberated me from my bondage and you brought me into your kingdom. So Jesus, thank you. And if that's all we have to offer this morning, I pray that that would be enough. Just thank you, thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and our minds to your words. As John comes up and teaches us, would our hearts be ready to receive you, to understand you and to know you more. Lord, we love you, we're grateful for you and for this time this morning. You're our King and we'll praise you forever. Amen. You guys can be seated. Lavish, in its adjective form, means subtitiously rich, elaborate, luxurious. So I got a great examples of some, I got some examples of some lavish things for you. First, the most lavish and expensive jet in the world is, well, you probably guess it by looking at it, but is from a Saudi prince. It's worth 500 million dollars. Can you believe that? I think that's actually a throne in the middle of it. So if I was going to pick my $500 million jet, I probably would get a different interior, but I probably won't have that opportunity. Lavish. Uh, one of the most lavish vacation spots in the world is Lakala Island Resort in Fiji. For $44,000 a night, you can stay there. Wouldn't that be great? If anybody's planning on going, you can take me with you. It's actually by application only, so you gotta apply to be able to go. That's not the most lavish place in the world. The most lavish resort in the world is, surprise, Antarctica. You actually take a trip from Cape Town, South Africa. Five hours later, you land in in Antarctica and you spend 24 hours there and it only costs $195,000 for one day. Lavish, right? I was thinking at $8,700 an hour, you probably wouldn't want to take your time to sleep in one of those tents. You might just want to spend time outside or something like that. The Guinness Book of World Records says the most expensive wedding ever recorded was $55 million in Versailles, France. And I looked up the names of the people who were married and they're no longer married today. A most lavish dinner party was, it would be uh, Jan Nuri, a New York-based chef, for, for $15,000 or upwards of $15,000 a person will, will come to your home, wherever you live, and the general concept of his business is the best of everything. He sources only the best ingredients, no matter the expense, no matter the geographical logistics, he will come and make you dinner, but it's only $15,000 a person. That's a lavish dinner party, isn't it? Well, in our passage today, we're not gonna drop in on one of the most lavish dinner parties ever, but we are gonna drop in on one of the most lavish responses to a dinner party ever. And we're gonna, we're gonna come to the table and we're gonna see the different guests at the table this morning. And we're gonna see this incredible response to this dinner party. And here's what I think we're gonna learn. That your heart attitude for, towards something will determine your response to it. And in a spiritual sense, your heart attitude towards Jesus will always determine your response to Jesus. And we're gonna see an incredible response this morning. But that begs this question, how's your heart? How's your heart attitude towards Jesus? Are you, are you here this morning and the Lord has just tilled this, this fresh soil in your heart and you're just ready to receive his word? If you are, that's great. But maybe there's some here this morning who you, you're in a hard place. Maybe it's caused a hard Maybe there's busyness going on or, or fear, anxiety, anger, maybe even shame. And I just wanna speak to you for a moment. If that's you and you're struggling with that, you are in the right place because we are a church of fellow strugglers. We don't have it all figured out. But as we come this morning to the word of God, I just wanna give us a moment 
to pause. And if you are struggling with something, I just between you and God, I just want you to give it to him because he has incredibly big shoulders. And if you're struggling with sin, just confess it to him and ask him, ask forgiveness from him. Allow him to take that. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you recognizing that you are God and we are not. Lord, there's a lot going on in the world and we just, we just give our struggles to you. Take a moment just between you and God. If you need to give something to him, give it to him. If you need to confess something to him, do that. Lord, we just come before you and say thank you. You are the God of everything. You're the God of creation. You're the one who gave us the scriptures. You're the Lord of the lords and the King of kings. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us from your word this morning and you would give us the lavish love that we see displayed in your scriptures. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, one of the things we're passionate about fellowship is the Bible. That's why we're called Fellowship Bible Church. We love the Bible. And not only do we love to teach the Bible, but we love to teach you to study the Bible. And so our passions, our, our, our scripture passions this morning, it actually gives us the opportunity to teach one of those, those uh, techniques of studying the Bible. And so one of the techniques in studying the Bible is just asking good questions. So when you come to the scriptures, you, to study the scriptures, you should always ask these five crucial questions, five good questions. Who, what, when, where, and why? As you step into the scriptures, you should always ask these questions. And it seems simple, but when you do it, it literally causes the scriptures to come alive. You you begin to understand the scriptures. And so we're going to go through that this morning as we set the table for our passage, as we have a dinner party, or we step into a dinner party, we're going to see the who and the what and the when and the where and the why of this dinner party and the why of this passage. So join me if you would. The first half of the passage actually covers most of those questions. As we step into this dinner party, let's look at this. Let's answer the first question, the who question. Pick up the study in John chapter 12, verse one. It says this, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where, G- where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor, Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. So let's see the who here. Our first guest is that of Jesus. We'll see he's also the guest of honor. He's the son of God. They're actually having this dinner party because Jesus has come back to Bethany. He's been away and now he's back. The the second guest is Lazarus. He's probably the second most interesting person here. Why is he interesting? Yeah, he spent four days in in the grave until Jesus raised him from the dead. There's this, this murmur going on. He is incredibly interesting, incredibly popular. Matter of fact, we see just a few verses later in verse nine of this of this chapter, it says this. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there. And so a little bit later in the dinner party, all these people are gonna show up and kind of crash the party. They found out Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also because, also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. You see, not only were the religious elite concerned about Jesus, they were also concerned about this miracle life in Lazarus. So we got Jesus, we got Lazarus. The third person there is Martha. Now, what do you know about Martha? What do you know about Martha? Yeah, I'm hearing this service, right? She's the sister of service. You might remember in Luke chapter 10, and I'm sure Martha's in heaven wishing this, this passage wasn't recorded about her in scripture, but she tells Jesus what to do. Listen to this. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. I mean, how many people tell Jesus what to do? 
Do you remember Jesus' response? Martha, Martha. Martha, Martha. You're worried about so many things, but how many things are important? One. Was Mary doing the right thing? Yeah. And I think we give Martha too hard a time. I think she's an incredible servant of the Lord. I think this, this gift of service is so important. She's the sister of service. Martha, she's doing what she always does. She's serving. And then there's those reclining at the table are present. We don't really know who they are. They're most likely the disciples, maybe someone else. Um, if you look at some of the other accounts, you'll see that there are the disciples are there with them. And then there's Mary. Mary is the sister of sacrifice. If, if Martha's the doer, Mary's what? She's the beer. If Martha's the doer, Mary's the dreamer. But Mary's at the table as well. She's the sister of sacrifice. She's also the sister to Lazarus and Martha. And she's known for sitting at the feet of Jesus in that crucial time. And then the next character is the villain. Every good dinner party, or maybe not dinner party, every good story has a villain, right? And who's the villain here? Judas, poor guy, he's always the villain. But it's Judas. He's the villain. You'll see in him a struggle in his heart. And hopefully we're not struggling with that same struggle in our heart. And then there's a mystery guest. Um, it doesn't, he doesn't, he's not mentioned in this passage, but to know about our study today, what you know is this is actually recorded in a couple other um, gospel accounts. So both Matthew and Mark also record this same account. Now Luke has an account of a woman who anoints Jesus uh, with oil as well, but most Bible commentators believe that's another account altogether. It's in another place at another time. But Matthew and Mark, most commentators believe that this is the same account. And if we look at the book of Mark, you'll see this account in Mark chapter 14, verse three. Look at this. While he was in Bethany, he, Jesus, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper. So now we know where the party's at. And there's this mystery guest at the table. So, so far we have, we have Jesus and we have a Mary and Martha. And of course, Martha's up serving. And, and we have Judas and we have this mystery guest, Lazarus. We have Lazarus. We have this mystery guest of Simon the leper. Now, I don't know about you, but there's something that bothers me about this. If Simon's hosting the dinner party and he's a leper, that's not a good thing. I mean, you think it bothers us. What, what if I said, hey, my whole family has COVID, but we'd love to have you guys come over for dinner tonight. What would you say? <clears throat> Leprosy is so much of a bigger thing. So, so for, for this dinner party to happen, <clears throat> for, for Simon to be the host, he must not have leprosy. So how would we not have leprosy? Yeah, Jesus, good answer. It's always a good answer in church, but, but it's Jesus, so, and I'm just, I'm just using my sanctified imagination here, but if, if they're having a party at Simon's home and they call him Simon the leper, they should call him Simon the former leper, most likely he was healed by Jesus. So I want you to think about this dinner party for a minute. Think about who's here. You have a, a man healed of leprosy, most likely. You have a man who was dead for four days, who was brought back from the dead. You had the son of God. You have the man who's gonna betray the son of God. And then you have these two incredibly godly women and Martha and Mary and then the other disciples. And the, the tension here must be incredible. The joy must be incredible. The hope must be incredible. The, the wondering what the future is gonna be like must be incredible. And then we're gonna look in on their responses in just a moment. So with the table set of who, let's look at what. And the what we find in the second verse there, here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. So Jesus is the guest of honor. The reason they're having the dinner is for Jesus. Maybe possibly it's a thank you dinner. Hey, thanks for raising my brother from the dead. Maybe it's just they know, they're beginning to know what's going on. The wind there is six days before the Passover. Now, the Passover celebration was everything for the Jews. It was incredibly, it would have been an incredibly festive time. The, 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 there's probably starting to ramp up for the celebration. You think bikes, blues, and barbecue is a big deal? You know how the sound changes around here? The Passover would have been incredible. And it would have affected these surrounding towns like Bethany. And it's an incredible time and especially for those who are following Jesus. 
because it's a short time. Six days before the Passover, six days before his loneliness, his thorns, his bearing of sin, six days before the cross, before he would die. Then the where, the where is it's in Bethany where Lazarus lived. We see it's in the home of Simon the leper. If you look at Bethany, it's right outside of Jerusalem. I believe I got a map. Yeah, so we got Bethany. You see Jerusalem? You see Bethany's right outside of it. The place Jesus had been is Ephraim, which is just north. That's where they believe that town is. And so what happened, if you go back to John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. You remember that? And then he basically is, is he's not run out of town, but he realizes it's not his time and they're after him and, and he, he, he doesn't want things to happen. So he retreats to Ephraim with his Jews, I mean, with his um, disciples for just a little while. And now he's back in Bethany and he's ready to begin this last week of his life. And then we look at the why, the why of the passage. And, and you know, we understand that it's a dinner party for Jesus And we understand what's going on, but we can't really understand the why until we look at three responses. We're going to look at the response of Mary. We're going to look at the response of Judas. And then we're going to look at the response of Jesus. So if you would, turn with me to verse 3 of John chapter 12. And it says this. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet. And wiped his feet with her hair, and the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. You've got a dinner gathering, a dinner party going on, and they're, they're all seated around the table. Uh, and Martha, what we hear, is she's, she's kind of serving them. And it wouldn't have been a table like this. It would have been most likely a, a, a short table, like, almost like a coffee table or something like that. Most likely there'd have been pillows, no chairs. They'd have been reclining. And most likely Jesus' feet would have been behind him. And so at some point, in some way, either Mary was helping serve or she was at the table. She got up and she decided to do something incredibly lavish. And to see this, you've got to basically think of three things. What is the item? What is the action? And then what is the attitude of Mary's heart? So let's look at the item first. The item... It's this, a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about the word nard, but it's a little bit interesting, isn't it? I actually think of this, this character on this TV show, the nard dog, Andrew Bernard. You know, I was like, okay, no, no, it's not that, not that. And I think of the word lard. I'm like, I don't know why, I just do. And it's not that either. It's actually this rare herb. And it's, it's from like India or China. Or, and it's, it's way away from where Bethany was. And it's actually a large amount of it. So for it to get to Bethany and it's for them to have this in perfume form, it's very valuable. We'll see in just a minute, it's actually worth a year's wages. So think about a, the cost of your family for a year, the, the, the salary your family lives off for a year. That's what this is worth. It's incredibly expensive possibly a family investment. Maybe it was an inheritance. Maybe it was even a dowry that was being held aside. Maybe it was, it was uh, for, a, for burial preparation, but they didn't use it for Lazarus, but they're using it now. The action is she poured it on Jesus' feet. Uh, both Mark 14 and Matthew 26 say his head, and there was enough for both. It, both of them say also it was in an alabaster jar. The jar is broken and poured on him. It's extravagant, it's lavish, it's, it's really hard to understand why someone would do this aside from the worship of God. And the next thing she does is she wiped his feet with her hair. And I think to understand both these things, we have to understand the attitude of Mary's heart, the significance of Jesus' feet. No one touches another's feet, especially in this time, in that society, when everyone wore sandals and their feet were always dirty. And here's what one commentator says. Touching the feet of someone was regarded by the Jews as a very degrading experience and was normally reserved for slaves or others to whom little honor was due. The fact that Mary was willing to do this act at a meal in the presence of others communicates volumes about her elevated regard for Jesus. Folks, this is incredible. Her response to Jesus is nothing short of absolute worship. She's worshiping God. 
And then she does this even almost more shocking thing. She, she undoes her hair and she, she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair, which in this culture would have been totally shocking. It would have been hard to understand. Some people have even said there's, there's something going on between Mary and Jesus, almost insinuating that it's sensual. And I think to, to, it's hard for me to even understand that. You have to put that aside. And I think if you're looking in secular terms, I could see where you're thinking about that. But in spiritual terms, for, for a people of the opposite sex, or a man and a woman to relate in spiritual uh, engagement, what you need to think of, 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 a, of a biological brother and sister. That when I look at any woman, when I talk to any woman other than my wife, I should be thinking I'm talking to my biological sister and even more so my spiritual sister. She's my sister in Christ. And for Mary to relate to Jesus, it's so much higher than that. She's not relating to her spiritual brother in Christ. She's relating to Christ. She's relating to God. And she's responding in a very lavish but appropriate way. Warren Wearsby says this about worship. He says, worship is the believer's response of all they are, their mind their emotions, their will, and their body to what God is and says and does. That sounds appropriate here, doesn't it? It sounds appropriate for Mary. Worship is the believer's response of all that they are to what God is and says and does. That brings us back to our big idea. Your heart attitude towards Jesus determines your response to Jesus. You know, it's interesting in that, that, that definition of lavish I gave you earlier, that was the adjective form. Listen to the verb form definition. To bestow something in generous or extravagant quantities. See, Mary's worship was lavish. And what that does for me, I'm trying to think, would I respond that way? Or would I respond a little bit differently? Maybe more like this next response. Look at verse four. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why was this perfume sold? Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. It's interesting, isn't it? With Judas, we're gonna see two things. First, we're gonna see a, a practical objection, but then we're gonna see a heart motivation. And the practical objection side, I'm kind of like, you know, I, I get that. It doesn't make sense to me. It makes sense to use that in another way. That, that's a year's worth of wages. What's going on here? Dave Ramsey wouldn't be happy. It doesn't make reasonable sense. But then you see in verse six, his heart motivation. Look at this. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. You see, Judas valued riches. Mary valued Jesus. Judas loved money more than he loved Jesus. Mary loved Jesus more than she loved money. I think it's incredibly telling for us. And in our practical, conservative American Christianity, this is a really hard thing for us to understand, doesn't it? Man, I got a kid to send to college. We got braces to buy. We got all these things to do. What are you doing with this? Incredibly lavish response. Here's how Judas is talked about in other places by Jesus and by the writer John. In John 17, Jesus calls Judas the one doomed to destruction. In John chapter six, he calls yet one of you, and he doesn't identify who it is, yet one of you is a devil. See, Mary values Jesus more than she valued her inheritance or her investment or her riches. Mary lavishly loved Jesus and Judas lavishly loved money. It's an economic thing with Judas. It makes me wonder, I wonder if Judas was only in this disciples thing because he thought, you know, if Jesus really is who he says he is, he's got this charismatic leader, I'm gonna follow him. He says he's gonna usher in the kingdom. And then when things start to go south, what happens? He's out. You wonder if his heart was really in it. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 
says this about money. I think it's pretty challenging. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Does he say money is bad there? No. Money's a tool. Money's not bad at all. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Some Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It feels like he's talking about somebody from our passage, doesn't it? But we've seen Mary's response. We've seen Judas's response. I want you to see Jesus' response. He says this, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. But you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. I don't know about you, but this has always been a little bit hard for me to understand. And I think to understand it, you've got to realize there's three kind of leave her her alone commands. You know, you wonder if Jesus was ever going to say, shut up, this was the time. He's saying, stop talking. Leave her alone. And for three things, he says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. This act is part of my death preparation. You see, Mary's got a better understanding, it seems like, going on here and what's happening in the future than any of the other people at the party. Leave her alone. This is preparation for my death. Number two, leave her alone. The poor you will always have with you. You know, some people have used this to say that Jesus doesn't love the poor. Read the rest of the New Testament. Read the rest of the Gospels. Jesus tells us over and over to take care of the poor, and we see him do it over and over. There's a third, leave her alone. Leave her alone. I'm leaving soon. How many times has he told him this? It's coming. It's coming more closer and more closer. Leave her alone. This is my last Passover with you. This might have been his last meal with them, with, with Mary and with Lazarus and Martha. And we see opened up there Judas's heart. He loves money, lying, justifying, stealing. We see Mary's heart. She loves Jesus, lavishly so that it's kind of hard to understand. So that begs the question, what about your heart? What about my heart? Is there something that I am holding higher that I'm loving more than God? Is it money? You know, we have to live in one of the most affluent times in history. Probably one of the most affluent areas in the affluent countries in the time of history. And I'll confess to you, this passage has been very convicting to me. We shouldn't love anything more than Jesus. If that doesn't bother you enough, I want to end with this passage in Matthew chapter 26. And so Matthew 26 and Mark 14 are the parallel passages to our John passage. And in both those passages, the very next thing talked about is this. And I want to read it for you. Then one of the 12 the one called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. You'll be careful. You can see where the love of money leads. You, you, we, we see in, in people's lives that for the love of anything above God leaves, that, that your heart, the attitude of your heart will be displayed or determined the response to Jesus. Hey, one definition we've used of worship over and over and over at Fellowship, and I love it, and it's kind of, it's just been on my heart. It's kind of become my definition of worship is this. Worship is the recognition of who God really is and giving an appropriate response. You know, my prayer is that we be a church that just responds appropriately to God. That Northwest Arkansas would be a different place because of him and because of Jesus working through us. And so the question for us is, Jesus isn't at the table. He isn't in the room. The Holy Spirit is here. God is here. 
But what's our appropriate response? And I would say the word lavish. What does lavish look like? What does it look like to lavishly love God and because of that, we love each other and the watching world really, really well. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for what you've done in our lives. Lord, this is incredibly convicting stuff. I pray if there's any of us in the room who are dealing with the love of money, that Lord, you would just convict us, you would challenge us, you would encourage us to live differently. Lord, I pray that we would be a church who, of people who hold our love for you above everything. And we wouldn't be afraid to love lavishly. Even when it doesn't make sense to the world. Lord, we thank you for loving us in a very incredibly lavish way. And Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts and our minds as we respond through song this morning. What an incredible way to respond. Lord, may we sing your praises with our voice and then may we leave these doors and may we worship you in all kinds of wonderful ways. But Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus. Our affection, our devotion, poured out on the feet of Jesus. Our affection, our devotion, poured out on the feet of Jesus. Our affection, our devotion. you 
Well, Jesus, that's what we declare to you this morning. You are the one that our hearts adore. Lord, it's not money, it's not possessions, it's not success, and it's not the approval of others, Jesus. Because we don't bow our knee to any other king but you. So Lord, we're just grateful for you, for time in your word, for time to sing your praises. And Lord, we haven't been able to do it enough. And that's why we keep coming back every Sunday because there's more praises to sing, more truths to rejoice in, more love to experience, more grace to find because Jesus, you are more amazing and more powerful and more wonderful than we could ever possibly imagine. So Jesus, I just ask that you would call us deeper, deeper into your love, to know the way that you've loved us, Jesus, seeing our sin, but still choosing to die on the cross. Romans 5 tells us that while we were still sinning, you died for us. Not after we'd gotten our act together or cleaned up a little bit, Jesus. While we were in the act of rebellion against you, you saved us. So Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your love, for your presence. We're so grateful. We love you, Lord. You're our King. Amen. Well, fellowship, we love you guys. If you need prayer, the Campbells will be in the prayer room over here and they'd love to pray with you. And if not, we'll see you next week. We love you.